Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week, we take a look at Inconvenient Indian, an urgent new documentary which, much like the book it's based on, looks to subvert the colonial understanding of the indigenous people in North America. The idea of the Indian is more important than the reality of the Indian. I am a Pueblo and a graduate of the Albuquerque Indian School. Nobody wants the Indian. They just want that idea. Because the idea is non-threatening. And the question we have to face is, are our traditions and languages worth the cost of carrying on the fight? That voice you just heard there belongs to author Thomas King, who wrote The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America. His book is a meditation on indigenous identity, popular culture, and activism, and served as a guide to filmmaker Michelle Latimer's new documentary. We were in the Hollywood Western costume, and he was looking at all the costumes and being like, wow, look at this. And then he's like, what if I dressed up and walked down the Venice boardwalk in Los Angeles? And I was like, go for it. So that was his (laughs) idea. And yes, it was exactly to speak to what you, you just mentioned about his quote in the film is, unless we look like 19th century versions of the dead Indian, uh, we, we are unseen, we're invisible. Unless we're looking like Indians and acting like Indians, um, n- no one will see us. In our conversation, we get into Thomas King's involvement in the doc, how the film is subverting the narrative around Indigenous people, and much more. Stay with us. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, we sometimes like to ask filmmakers about the titles of the docs that they that they film, and yours is coming from a book by Thomas King. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your interpretation of the title, An Inconvenient Indian, or The Inconvenient Indian, I should say. You know, it's interesting. I think that often, um, you know, when you hear the news, I, I'm going to use the Wissewitin protests as a, as a perfect example. Once the blockade started happening in solidarity across the country with the railway lines being shut down, I would hear a lot of people start to say, oh, I can't get to work, my commute's taking longer, oh, our trade is being disrupted, certain um, food items are not getting shipped across the country. This is such an inconvenience, it's such a bother. And it made me start to think about the inconvenience of colonization and being, for indigenous people, being shoved off our lands, starved off our lands, uh, forcibly removed and put onto reservations, children being ripped away from their families and put into residential school. And I thought, you know, (laughs) um, adding a half hour to commute seems like a very small inconvenience in comparison to the historical inconvenience that our communities have faced for hundreds of years. 
Hmm. Well, Thomas King, uh, he's in the film, and this is a book based on his book. And uh, he's a doc. He's in the doc. He's uh, he's narrating it, and so obviously he had, he was very involved. But I wondered what his reaction was when you I guess when you spoke to him about making a doc about his book. I think he was more like I don't know how you're going to make my book into a film, but go for it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so he was just as curious as I think we were embarking on this project because I had no idea off in the offset either. It was an exploration, and the film was essentially found as we journeyed together. Did you sort of use the book as a guide? Absolutely. I broke the book down into themes. And from there, I started to brainstorm what could possibly be like visualizations of those themes. Yeah, one thing, one uh, image that came to mind was uh, of these uh, two indigenous men, you know, dressed in, um, I don't know, I'm not sure what the uh, proper term is for their for their clothing, but, uh, you know, they're walking down the street and uh, I guess... I think the point that was being made is that uh, indigenous people aren't, uh, unless they're dressed that way, they're, I guess, invisible to the rest of society. Yeah. Are you talking about Thomas King walking down the Venice boardwalk with his brother? Is it when they sort of come out of the crowd? Is that what you mean, that moment in the film? I was thinking of there was two gentlemen who had, uh, I guess, the feather headdresses. Oh, yeah, that's Thomas King and his brother. Oh, that was Thomas King? Yeah. Oh, wow, I didn't yeah, even recognize him. So, <laughs> that was his idea. He, we were in the Hollywood costu- Western costume, and he was looking at all the costumes and being like, wow, look at this. And then he's like, what if I dressed up and walked down the Venice boardwalk in Los Angeles? And I was like, go for it. So that was his <laughs> idea. And yes, it was exactly to speak to what you, you just mentioned about his quote in the film is, unless we look like 19th century versions of the dead Indian... Uh, we we are unseen. We're invisible, unless we're looking like Indians and acting like Indians. Um, n- no one will see us. Did anyone kind of give any looks or stares? Oh yeah, it was amazing. Like people wanted to take photos with him. They were like, "Hey, brother!" <laughs> like you know, and it was very interesting. There was a cowboy who was lassoing. Uh, empty saddle for like busking on the sidewalk and he was just thrilled <laughs> oh wow it was very funny <laughs> well your documentary also touches on uh nanook of the north which is this famous doc by robert j flaherty um what impact did that doc have on the perception of indigenous people well, that documentary was considered one of the first feature documentaries to ever, it might have been even the first feature documentary to um, show Indigenous people, as he said, Robert Flaherty said, um, in how they actually are, in their actuality. But um, that wasn't the case, because at the time, Inuk people were hunting with rifles and modern technology, but Robert had them uh, recreate old ways of, of being, where um, much more primitive methods of hunting, where they were using harpoons and spears and, you know, um, sleds. And, uh, and so it really, it, it basically perpetuated a misrepresentation that basically look, made the Inuk people look primitive. It was almost like a joke. They, they, they seem sort of primitive and less educated and less sophisticated. And um, as Lalithia Arnakek Barrel, the filmmaker who gives the context in the film, says, well, it wasn't, I don't think it was meant as a malintent. Uh, he definitely, um, there was a violence in perpetuating that stereotype because for many people that was their first relationship or first actual um, experience seeing Inuk people. And so that would be the image that was formulated in their mind. 
in the late 60s, we started to see, I think, indigenous people get behind the camera. And I'm thinking of the, uh, the NFB's Indian film crew. We actually interviewed um, Mike Mitchell, who directed You Are on Native Land uh, last season. And um, I'm wondering, um, from your point of view, just how things started to change um, for um, when it came to putting indigenous people behind the camera. Uh, how did the perspectives of indigenous people start to change? Well, I, I just want to take it back one second, because I actually think that there's this there is this feeling that indigenous people were not recording the other way around in the time of Robert Flaherty. But when I went to the Royal Ontario Museum, the curator took me to the back stacks and said, you have to see this. And he pulled out these pencil drawings, charcoal drawings. And there was an, a, a drawing by an Inuit artist who drew Robert Flaherty with his camera crew filming Inuk people. And so he, in his own way, as this artist, was recording Robert Flaherty, recording his community. So this idea of us watching them has been, has actually been happening. But then with the advent of cinema, now we have filmmakers who are going behind the lens to actually, I guess, I hesitate to use the word reclaim, but I would definitely say to repurpose our, and, and, and reimagine how Indigenous people are reflected in media. You spoke to a number of people in the doc, including Kent Monkman, who's an artist, very famous uh, artist and, and indigenous artist. Uh, we don't see their names, though, until I guess maybe the end of the film when you when you see all the people you interviewed. What, what was the reason behind that? Uh, for many, many years, I programmed at the Hot Dogs International Mall, uh, International um, F- Film Festival, and I, I worked in the Canadian programming side. And I would watch hundreds and hundreds of documentaries every year. And I would watch how Western cinema, and particularly documentary, um, really privileged the expert interview. And there was something about like, oh, now we're hearing from someone who really has something to say because he has a PhD, you know, and, <laughs> and it would be this talking head and, and this sort of the voice of God. And I just thought about how our storytelling in indigenous communities is much more collective. And, um, and I wanted this to be a collective telling of our history. And so, um, you know, we have famous artists like Kent Monkman and Christy Belcourt, but we also have community hunters like Stephen Lonsdale, who hunts seal in Nunavut. And I really wanted, yeah, that, that everyone was on the same level playing field, that everyone, and then you meet them later with their names in the credits, but that it was essentially a chorus of people coming together to tell one singular story. Yeah, that idea of kind of the expert interview, I, I, I'm not sure if it was if I had read it in an interview with you or someone else, but they, they kind of sort of a colonial way of, of filmmaking. Is that is that your sense as well? It is a colonial way because I think it quantifies education and academia in a way that is um, above other forms of education. And when I think about indigenous knowledge, there's a lot of different kinds of forms of education. You might have a, a medicine uh, person or and a healer or a warrior who has very different education than a medicine person. Or, you know, so I, I think it's important to quantify that there's different ways to maintain knowledge and to have a purpose and a place in society. And I sometimes feel like with colonial value systems that it's kind of one way or the highway. And so I just, it was a tip of hat to the, the, that. Hmm. Mentioned, um cultural reclamation, or I think you said cultural um, repurposing. Was that the word that you preferred? I, I guess I sometimes hesitate with reclamation because it feels okay. like it was taken away and we're just like reclaiming it for us. But I want to say it's like a reimagining of how the mm. stories are told. Well, but I think in the film, there's a, a, a conflict between generations uh, emerges. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that idea a little bit. 
Yeah, I think for me, it was one of the most profound ideas to come out during this process of filming because it very, it very much resonated for me and it's certainly my experience. Um, Alethea Arnakek Barrel puts forward this idea that that the the middle generation, which is um, the generation caught between the direct survivors of residential school and then the ch- their their own children. So, um, you know, if you were the child of a residential school survivor, you were shamed so hard because your parents basically had their culture snuffed out, and that shame kind of resonates. So the children of the the children of the children, the third generation, <laughs> um, they're starting, there's this resurgence that people are, are claiming cultural practices and it's a wonderful thing. But as a result, that middle generation was shamed so hard for trying to reclaim those things that there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes where it, it, they're, they're happy for us, but also it's painful for them to watch that because they weren't allowed to do that. They didn't have that voice and that um, autonomy. This is kind of quite tra- tragic, really. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, and just to see, especially what some of the I guess the younger generation are doing, especially on you know social media, and um, you you feature a tribe called Red, who I absolutely love in this film, and I I love the way they meld I guess um, electronica music with uh, you know their own culture. I think that's just like astounding the what the sound that they're able to create doing that. Yeah, I mean, so many of the artists are doing that. When I think of Tanya Tekak, too, she's also, it's a mashup, right? And, yeah. you know, you, even Kent Monkman's work as a painter, he's mashing classical with very contemporary, um, you know, representations of, of transgender sexuality. And, you know, he's very coy with what he's playing with. And so I do feel that a lot of Indigenous artists are mashing up sort of traditional ideas with very contemporary ideas. And this is where I think the essence of our art is becoming very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, Thomas King was on CBC a little while ago, and uh, I'm going to quote him here. He said that North Americans would prefer their Indians to be dead and visible, but they don't really want us to be live because live Indians are, in fact, inconvenient. We get in the way, especially for the movers and shakers in North America. And, you know, we were talking earlier about wet sweat, and I think, you know, he was specifically speaking about land and mining and resources. Um, you know, in the film, you kind of juxtapose indigenous children learning how to fish on a river and the wet and the protests that we saw. Uh, so what, I guess I want to get your perspective on, I guess, land, uh, being at the center of, uh, this conflict between, I guess, uh, the settler Canadian state and indigenous peoples. I absolutely think that land is central to all of the issues. The fact is, is that, um, we were forcibly removed from our lands, put on, uh, reserves, Um, and our treaty rights to this day have been um, denied and disrespected. There are land claims that are unsettled all over this country. And um, and presently, when you look at Wasewetan, that, you know, the Supreme Court laws that are the laws of this federal government are even being breached in order to protect corporate interests. So I think that land is central to all the fights because indigenous people, our storytelling comes from the land, our value systems come from the land, our belief systems, and there's an idea of stewardship. If we can't stand for the land and, and, and protect it and respect it, we have no hope to do that for ourselves and our own humanity. They're, they're, not, they're not separate things, they're not siloed, there's an interconnectedness there that has to be respected and protected. And I think that this is the essence of what Thomas King says when he said, it's always been about land. It will always be about land. How do you, I don't know if you can um, 
predict the, certainly can't predict the future, but how do you kind of see this, this conflict being settled? I mean, in terms of like, you know, land claims being respected or land, yeah, land being respected and, and treaties being respected. Is it going to come through, like, I guess the electoral process, is it going to come through protests? I, I don't know. What do you, what do you sort of hope well, to see? I'm certainly not an expert at these things and there are people that are far more schooled at this than me, but I would say mm-hmm. that, you know, I think it's going to come down to treaty laws being respected. Um, and I think British Columbia is really central to this fight because they're on unceded territories. These were never territories that were given over to treaties or signed over. Um, they've never left the stewardship of the indigenous people who had had governance over those ter- territories from the very beginning of, of settlement, before settlement in this country. And so that is going to be, I think British Columbia is a really interesting place to watch how that's going to play out in our Supreme Court system. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that uh, Thomas King says that I... I keep thinking about because it's it's so in the news right now with the uh, protests or the monuments to John A. McDonald and other, um, I guess, complicated figures from our, our history um, being toppled right now. Uh, he says that it's necessary to judge the past by the present. And of course, you know, people who, I guess, would defend John A. McDonald and others would just say, well, he was a man of his time and you have to put things into context, etc. I wonder what you think of that conflict that's that we're seeing right now. Well, I think it's it's a necessary conflict to really. I I feel like there's a lot of critical thought around. Well, what what are the histories that we're taking as as our main history? What are we like? And and I, we should be questioning these structures. You know, we're watching the fall of capitalism as we speak. You know, and yes, it might have taken a global pandemic for us to get there, but there are reasons that racial protests are erupting across North America right now. And it's not just because of a global pandemic. The inequalities that have been perpetuated are, are there's only so much time that you can sit there and watch your people be pepper sprayed, watch your people be shot by police, you know, um, watch your, your children um, be malnourished because we can't get food properly nutrients to the northern communities. You know, um, it's those kinds of things that I think people are saying enough is enough. And, and, and to be quite frank, our allies are saying enough is enough because climate change affects us all. And also, I think people are just saying we live in a beautiful country where we do have wealth. So let's distribute that more evenly. Mm-hmm. Well, I read an interview you gave to Variety and you said you wanted this film to be a, a provocation. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that, what you meant. I feel sometimes that we, in society, and I'm, I'm just as guilty as this, I'll read a very educational book or I'll go see a film that opens my mind and perspective, and I'm almost self-congratulatory in that I've, I've eaten good food today. I'm, more, I'm smarter because I've taken in this piece of intellectual cinema. But you know what? It's, that's not enough. I think the time for change is now. It's going to take boots on the streets. It's going to take people to divest. It's going to take people to put their money where their mouth is and really do direct action to see the change we want to see at play. And so I'm hoping that this film in some small way contributes to um, people being activated for change. And are you, do, you, do you see your own role in that as a filmmaker? Um, I, I, I know you're, you're an actress as well, but are you now more focused behind the scenes as opposed to being in front of the camera? Yeah, I think 
early on in my career as an actress, I, I questioned, well, whose voice am like, I? Like, I feel like I'm a tool for someone else's voice. How can mm. I be a tool for my, a voice for my own community and the issues that anger me, incise me, you know? I, I, and then I went to Standing Rock and I was there for nine months on the front lines and I watched what happened and it completely reframed, I guess, my perspective on the world. And I just didn't think in my lifetime I would see the things I saw in Standing Rock. At one point there was helicopters and, and um, surveillance planes flying 24-7 over us with snipers with floodlights and automatic rifles aimed down at us. This is unarmed protesters standing up for the land. And, this was, and the federal police were fighting for the corporate interests of a private pipeline company. You know, and so when I started to see those things at play, I, um, it just changed me. It changed me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those images. I mean, the sicking dogs on people. I mean, it, it just, it's astounding, <laughs> you know, 50 plus years after the civil rights movement, that's still uh, the reaction that, uh, you know, they use, use, they use police forces like that. But you know what's so interesting now, and this is where I think cinema is one of the most exciting mediums to be working in, is that the, the cameras are now in the hands of the citizens. Everyone has a cell phone with a camera on it. So the narratives are changing because of that. It's no longer his word against her word. Or, it's actually, no, I have the proof to show you this. And I think that's where we're getting, seeing a lot more allyship because people are, it's undeniable the image that, that we're seeing come out. Yeah. Well, we have to wrap up our conversation, but I wonder what Thomas King has uh, said about or thinks about the film, if you've talked to him and yeah, what are his reactions to it? Well, I think he was surprised by it. Like, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if he really knew it was coming. I understand mm -hmm. that he's happy with it. I, 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 he's been very warm and, and congratulatory. And um, I hope, I can only hope that, you know, but it's very awkward as a filmmaker to ask the subject of your film what they think of it. So I will leave that with him and just uh, be okay with uh, however it sits. <laughs> well, I think he'd be very proud of it. I thought it was a very excellent film. And Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today on On Docs. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's the podcast. Inconvenient Indie will be playing October 25th during the 2020 Imaginative Festival and then streaming on CBC Gem at a later date. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at tvo.org or you can follow me on Twitter at ColinLS81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew Amara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell, series producer Katie O'Connor, and executive producer for digital Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.